Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Hello, loyal listeners. I'm Dr. Tom Varghese, the general thoracic surgeon at the University of Utah and co-host of Same Surgeon, Different Light. In today's episode, we connect with one of the giants in our field, Dr. Douglas Wood, Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Washington. Doug is one of my cherished mentors, and hence you will see that though admittedly biased, this episode is rich in material. Dr. Doug Wood is the Henry Harkins Professor and Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Washington, and previously Professor and Endowed Chair in Lung Cancer Research, as well as Chief of the Division of CT Surgery at UW from 2009 to 2016. He has done it all outstanding physician who's consistently rated regionally and nationally as one of the top doctors in our field, numerous leadership positions nationally, including serving as a president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, who gave an incredible presidential speech entitled, Take It to the Limit, at the STS 50th Annual Meeting in January 2014, and critically involved in national health policy work, including the National Medicare Coverage Decision on Lung Cancer Reduction Surgery, for emphysema as a direct result of his leadership in the Landmark National Emphysema Treatment Trial and the 2015 National Coverage Decision on Lung Cancer Screening. In today's episode, you will learn about Doug's background, from the small farming town of Ostego, Michigan, to walking the hallowed halls of Harvard and Mass General Surgery and CT surgery programs, to building a world-class center of excellence in thoracic surgery at the University of Washington. We then engage on his unique perspectives of where we need to go as a field in CT surgery and end with the critical role physicians and surgeons need to play in the years ahead in advocacy work. Doug is the embodiment of the academic quadruple threat, excellence in clinical work, research, education, and leadership, who continually strives to do his best to build a better world. Join me as we interview Dr. Doug Wood on today's Same Surgeon, Different Life. Welcome, Doug, to, to this podcast. Well, Tom, this is a really a special privilege and honor for me, you know, particularly to have you interviewing me. So, you know, it's how many times that I get to uh, 
have the fun of being interviewed by a friend, colleague, and former partner. So this is great. I'm just hopeful that you haven't dug up any skeletons in my closet <laughs> and that this is going to become an expose on Doug Wood. No, I, I promise everybody that we'll keep it clean. Uh, but yes, <laughs> to the listeners, I am a very biased individual because uh, Doug gave me my first academic job. Uh, and uh, we'll be diving into the background as to probably the only mistake he's made ever in his uh, illustrious career, but we'll, we'll get to that. But yes, for the listeners, I'll try to keep it clean. Um, but Doug, uh, what I wanted to do is really uh, focus on um, a couple different themes throughout this interview. Um, first, you know, your incredible journey um, uh, from, you know, uh, the small town in Michigan to where you are right now. Um, it's kind of uh, your, your thoughts uh, as the field evolves and uh, specifically on some of the biggest attributes uh, that uh, I've learned for Sam watching you in action in terms of uh, your mentorship strategies and thinking of the big picture. But uh, let's uh, dive right in. Um, tell me about, and correct me if I'm mis mispronouncing it, Otsego, Michigan, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Good and um, did you go to high school there as well? Yeah, Otsego High School. Uh, so you were an Otsego Bulldog. Is that, is that good? Or <laughs> that, that is correct. And, you know, those of you from Michigan, like Tom is, uh, I will say that the fight song for the Otsego Bulldogs is to the tune of On Wisconsin. So it's a, you know. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> but uh, tell me about this. I mean, you grew up on a farm um, and from there your journey landed you in the hallowed halls at Harvard. But uh, please describe to, uh, to us how, how that journey started, uh, you know, growing up in Michigan. And I mean, did you envision what like was Harvard your goal growing up or like how, how did you end up there? <laughs> Harvard was not in my vocabulary growing up, um, you know, I, I was really fortunate. Um, I've been fortunate, I think, my whole life. But, um, you know, my, my sister and I, I have an older sister, and it was just the two of us. And we grew up on a farm uh, in uh, rural southwestern Michigan, outside of this small town of Otsego. Uh, the town is about 4,000, and we lived about three miles outside of town. And interestingly, my sister still lives in the house that she and I grew up in. Uh, so you know, the, the roots are still there. Um, and, you know, our parents valued education, even though neither one of them had gone to college. You know, they, they were both really smart people who valued education, value, valued excellence, uh, honored hard work, integrity, perseverance, tenacity. And you know, I think they certainly taught that uh, to me and, and to my sister. My, my sister, uh, in her own right, is smarter than I am. Uh, so um, she's you know, very accomplished as well. So um, and then, you know, there are people that end, that end up having special influences on you. And I had a couple of teachers. We all have teachers that stick out and I had a music teacher, Richard Hintz, 
a biology teacher, Bruce Ponzi, who both were inspiring and they took a special interest in me. Uh, and they were, you know, they were good to me. Uh, and, you know, I considered um, going to college and majoring in music because of Richard Hintz. Wow. Fortunately, because I think I had a recognition that probably I didn't have the talent to succeed at that. Um, I then was maybe better swayed by my biology teacher, Bruce Ponzi. And, you know, probably a, a, a real turning point in my life. And again, supported by my parents. And I, when I look backwards, I still um, am amazed at, you know, how they supported me and my sister. Um, the, my biology teacher uh, said that I should apply for a National Science Foundation summer program at Purdue University, West Lafayette, Indiana. And uh, I applied for it and got it. And I spent a summer um, doing veterinary research and going to a life sciences program sponsored by the National Science Foundation uh, at Purdue when I was in between junior and senior year of high school. And I think that you know, there are several key aspects of that, but probably the real key is, you know, the other students there, there were 40 students in the program. Um, I think 38 of them were from East Coast prep schools. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. They were, they were from Exeter, Andover, Groton, uh, places I had never heard of. And, you know, they were talking about applying to Ivy League colleges. They were talking about SAT scores. And I need to be honest, I did not know what the SATs were at that point in time. <laughs> Between the sophomore and junior year in high school. <laughs> yeah. So um, I went home and kind of thought to myself, I'm as smart as those people are. And I told my parents, I'm going to apply to Harvard. Um, and my parents said, no, you're not. This story's getting uh, better. So um, I actually, I, I secretly applied to Harvard without my parents knowing. Um, it cost $35, I remember, because uh, I had to find the $35. And applied to Harvard and Michigan State. I applied to two places. And I got into Harvard and convinced my parents that I could go. So that's how I ended up going to Harvard. You know, it was, I mean, if you can think of kind of a fluke and, you know, luck, that it, that's completely how I would uh, say this evolved. I mean, it was a sequence of circumstances originating from a teacher who cared about me and from parents that supported me. That's incredible. Now, but you were very active in sports all the way throughout. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, varsity, all-American swimming, uh, as well as, uh, did you, were you involved in crew when you were in Michigan or was that a, you just happened to use your athletic prowess and stumbled onto the Harvard crew team? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm laughing because you used a few too many adjectives in my swimming career. Varsity was correct, but not all American. I was, 
Okay. <laughs> I was a decent, but not outstanding swimmer. Uh, you know, I, I started swimming competitively as a freshman in high school, not as an age group swimmer at age five. And I still remember my father telling me that he thought when I was in my first freshman swimming meet and was doing the butterfly that I was going to drown. So that, so uh, swimming, swimming was my big sport in high school. Um, but, but there was no way I was going to be really competitive at the D1 level. But for swimming though, but, but then, but tell me about crew. When did you pick that up? So yes, anybody that grew up on a farm in the Midwest would know that rowing is what you did on weekends to go fishing. That's great. So my dad and I would go fishing. That's what I thought rowing was. I didn't know anything about competitive rowing until I got a letter from the crew coach before entering freshman year. And, 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 and was it, and that, that was coach Harry Parker. Is that correct? No, I, I think he sent the letter to every single male admitted to Harvard that was at least six foot tall. Um, <laughs> So I don't think I was anything special in getting that letter, but I got the letter and it said, yeah, go out for heavyweight crew because we win national championships and go to the Olympics. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, that sounds great. You know, I'll, I'm going to do that. And I did go to this, the swim meeting freshman year at Harvard and I was flanked by a bunch of all-American swimmers and knew that I was out of my league. And so I said, well, I'll try some different sport. I'll try crew, whatever that thing is. So I went out for the crew team. Well, the reason I mentioned Coach Harry Parker is I did, in my research, stumble across an article from 1979 in the Harvard Crimson, where it was a feature about Coach Harry Parker um, and they interviewed you, Doug, uh, in this article. It was a great quote, though, because they were, um, you, know, you and your teammates were giving credit to uh, Coach Parker. Uh, and this was your quote that, that you said. Uh, Doug Wood, uh, class of 1979, comments, with his laid-back style, Harry puts together an intensity in workouts that a loud coach wouldn't be able to produce. By not pushing most of the time, he makes oarsmen develop their own drive. He then adds the little bit extra, the pithy advice that makes us do well. Uh, was that kind of like your first exposure to a different leadership style than the in-your-face aggressiveness that was common in those days? Yeah, Tom, that's really insightful of you to pick up on that uh, um, and, and to find that quote. I didn't remember that. <laughs> When you read it, I, I remember it. And that is what Harry Parker was. Harry Parker is, you know, the, I'll, I'll tell the audience, the winningest coach in all of collegiate athletics in the United States, all sports. Um, so he, he's a, he was an incredibly remarkable human and, and person and coach. And he was very quiet. You know, his eyes would roll up in his head as he'd talk and he'd say, Doug, 
reach out a little bit farther at the catch. And that would be it. That would be my advice for the day. And I would go with that. And that's, that's what all of us did. And he, he pushed us to find in ourselves the competitiveness, the drive, the teamwork, um, the intensity to win. Uh, and he did it not by screaming, yelling, or, or even giving big pep talks. His pep talk would be something like, let's go out there and do our best. <laughs> and That's it. <laughs> the end of the story. And, uh, you know, and we would. That's, that's, that's amazing. Well, let, let's uh, continue on the story now. I mean, obviously you made a, a, a huge impact there. Uh, uh, I, I think you're being a little bit too modest. I, I, nobody walks onto the crew team. Uh, especially one that won a national championship, but uh, you excelled there, um, went to medical school at Harvard, uh, surgical residency at Harvard, um, and then at, at Mass General, and then of course, cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at Harvard. So during this time, were you thinking that, um, you know, like most people, graduates from Harvard end up staying in Boston or Harvard, or did you know all along that, yeah, I'm getting the best training in the world, but this path may not be for me. Like, when was the first inkling that you weren't going to stay there, that you were going to leave? Yeah, Tom, that's a great question. And thank you for not using the term that you were thinking of. <laughs> I avoided it. <laughs> I knew you were going to call me a preparation H at some point. Um, and, you know, thank you for not saying it and making me do it. Uh, <laughs> normally it's just, you know, uh, if you're there for three things, if you're there for four, it's like you're a lifer. And that's what you're asking about. Why, you know, <laughs> why didn't I stay? And you're, I, I guess you're implying that they would have had me um, because uh, pro probably the main reason I would, would leave is Harvard was finished with me and there's no way that they'd let me stay. Well, I, I can't imagine that because you, one of your mentors is Doug Matisson, who we had the privilege of interviewing for this podcast earlier this year. Uh, and knowing Dr. Matisson, I'm pretty confident that if you wanted to stay, they would have created a spot for you. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a background to the story that you are shedding light on. Well, you know, in all seriousness, I, I think, you know, back to kind of, talking about other pivotal experiences. Um, another one for me was uh, I decided during my general surgery residency uh, to take a clinical year uh, abroad rather than, so I did that really instead of doing research at, at a time when many people would have taken a time out between third and fourth year and, and done research for one or two years. Um, I decided to uh, do clinical training, but in another country. Um, and I went to Australia for a year. I, I was a surgical registrar at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, Australia. And what I think, you know, first, that was a great experience. And I still have lots of very close friends in Australia. I love it there. Uh, um, and it was a terrific year. 
But one of the, the aspects relating to your question is, it was, that was a long way away from Harvard, a long way away from Boston. And um, it, it gets easy when you're inside the, the Boston circle to feel like it's an ivory tower and no place else is as good. And I learned that that wasn't the case when I was in Sydney, Australia. I saw, you know, surgeons, doctors who are every bit as smart, everybody as good as everyone that I worked with at Harvard. Um, and, and approached things somewhat differently as well. They were, you know, um, more irreverent, uh, more laid back, uh, kind of crazy sometimes. And it made me realize, you know, it, it made me be more open to the fact that there's a whole world uh, in terms of place to be, to set yourself up and to have an influence and to make a difference. And that world extends far beyond uh, um, 495 surrounding Boston. I have a funny feeling you and I are going to be getting in trouble for this interview after this is done, Doug. But, um, but it was, you know, I, I, I get it. That was your eye-opening experience. There's things outside of Harvard. But the courage it took for you to take that first academic position. Uh, so for the listeners, most fresh grads, myself included, go and try to join an established practice you know, so that you have the opportunity to not only build your skills, but um, to kind of learn how things are done at the elite level before uh, we jump to our academic opportunities to either lead or build a program from scratch. But the position you took coming out of Harvard was at a then back then, nobody really knew about at the University of Washington cardiothoracic surgery division, your job was to build a world-class section of thoracic surgery. I, I know that we both have a mutual mentor at Varrier who was in charge back then, but how was that decision process? I'm pretty confident you probably had other job opportunities, but you took this one where you had to build something from the ground up. Could you kind of tell to our listeners what went through your mind as, as you took on this awesome challenge. Yeah, there's a few factors there. Um, and, you know, I, I like to talk about this because when I think backwards, I think first, I was really lucky. Uh, um, but, you know, I also have a lot of gratitude uh, for uh, people and opportunities that I had. So first, at the front end, I, I had the mentorship of Hermes Grillo and Doug Matheson, uh, who trained me well gave me the confidence to feel like I could do anything, uh, that I could go somewhere and run a thoracic surgery program. <laughs> and, I, and I look backwards and go, wow, that's crazy. But that, that's due to them and them get, you know, supporting me, giving me confidence and training me well. Um, and then Ed Verrier recruited me. And you're right, I had looked at other jobs um, and Ed Verrier had just been at the University of Washington a couple of years, and I was impressed by him. Uh, you know, he 
was young, dynamic, energetic, enthusiastic, and he had a vision for wanting to create a world-class cardiothoracic surgery division in a place that had was solid clinically in cardiac surgery, but had really not developed educationally, academically, or in the subspecialty areas of general thoracic or congenital. And he was on a project of, he said, I want to make a world-class program. And he was re, you know, willing to recruit me to lead the general thoracic part of that. And so I, then I look with gratitude at Ed Verrier for actually being willing to take a chance on me for that. I mean, that's, that's pretty bold on his part. And when I look at the different jobs that I looked at and think about his influence, um, I, I ended up taking a chance on this job at the University of Washington uh, because I, I really felt even when I was being recruited that Ed Verrier cared about me. He was sincere about what he wanted to develop at the University of Washington. And he also was sincere and cared about me and wanted to help me develop my career. And he did. You know, Ed Verrier um, has been a lifelong role model, mentor, supporter, and a champion that has helped me progress in the field and has helped me reach uh, any of the success that I've had, he's been a big part of. Um, so when I look backwards, I went, I was smart. Uh, you know, I <laughs> because I trusted Ed Verrier and he has shown, he showed to me that he deserved that trust in, in helping me take this job. Your question though relates to, it's risky to go as a junior faculty member and start a program. And I reckon as, as kind of young and naive as I may have been, I recognized that. I thought there were safer routes and I kind of said, well, I might fall flat on my face, but I'm going to go for it. You know, uh, and I, I'm excited about what Ed Verrier's vision is. That's what my vision is. We share it, and I'm going to go there, and we're going to see if we can build it together. That's amazing. Uh, but there are two natural talents that you have, and maybe it's not natural. This is something that you worked on over the years. Um, and again, for the listeners. Doug hired me, but um, I was probably, you know, uh, amongst, I mean, easily to say at the time that we had, you know, heavyweights in our division. I mean, Ed was there, Gabriel Aldea was there, Nahush Mokadam, you know, even in division of, I mean, the section of thoracic surgery. I mean, in addition to you and I, Doug, I mean, Mike Mulligan, Leah Backus, Aaron Chang, Farhud Farja. I mean, I'm dropping names that are leaders in our field right now. Uh, and the two things I've always admired about you, uh, amongst many, but the two things that stand out are your ability to see the big picture and what I like to call talent acquisition and development. Um, that is not a natural trait for most people. You know, that, that's something that most people, it takes decades worth of experience to start seeing the big picture or have that natural ability of 
recruiting and nurturing and developing talent. Was that a, a lot of it from your life experience, Doug, uh, Doug, or is that something that maybe I'm being too simplistic in, in my descriptions? Well, to be brief, I think you're being too simplistic in your description, uh, but <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I think the main part that I would agree with you is um, I think I appreciate and like to surround myself with talent. After that, I, I think I just stay out of the way. Because, <laughs> you know, I'd like to say that I'm smarter or more deliberate or have some magic sauce. I don't think I have any of those things. I think it's mostly, I am really excited when I've got these great partners or great colleagues around me. And mostly my goal is stay out of their way and let them do what they're good at. You know, it's true with you. It's true with Leah Bacchus. Um, I mean, you know, two of my former partners who are, you know, amazing leaders in your own right. And my, you know, I didn't do anything about that. I mostly just got to be your partner for a while and stayed out of your way. Well, I, I have to respectfully disagree, Doug, because, you know, for me, I, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, before starting my journey here and building a program at the University of Utah, for me, I wanted to come to a program and learn how to do that before kind of striking out on my own. And so um, for good or bad, Doug, a lot of the things I'm doing right now in Salt Lake City is because of things that I learned directly from you. So. <laughs> well, you know, I... I I hope that the bad things I won't get credit for as well. I'm worried about what your chair now may be coming to me and talking with me about uh, some what of the, the yeah. <laughs> like the Tom do. That's great, but uh, no, you're, you're you're being very kind, uh, Doug. But no, I think um, you know seeing the big picture, and I think another evidence of that, um, you know, the next part where I want to really focus on is your incredible SDS. Uh, presidential speech that you gave in 2014. Um, and for our listeners, um, we'll try to attach it to the show notes for this podcast episode, but um, you can find it. It's published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, and it was titled, Take It to the Limit. Um, and uh, Doug, if you, if you bear with me, I'm going to mention a few quotes from your speech and just kind of get, get your thoughts on it um, as well. Um, you started your speech uh, attributing, obviously, Take It to the Limit is um, credited. It's a famous Eagle song, but it was also the anthem for your crew team. You know, as you correctly pointed out, as you competed for a gold medal at the Henley Royal Regatta, um, it was a rallying cry for college athletes competing on the world stage. And it became a foundation of how I wanted to lead my life. And then you went on forward and said that specifically for cardiothoracic surgery, if we are going to take it to the limit for the next five decades, we will need to continue to evolve as we have done in the past. But two themes specifically are important for us in our continued success. The first is to embrace a feminism in cardiothoracic surgery that has heretofore been distinctly absent. Um, and the other theme you said is, um, you just shift to a style of selfless leadership. Um, 
for me personally, this was like probably one of the most remarkable speeches that I've ever heard in my life because it was so um, much of a contradistinction to the machismo and surgery and um, that leadership uh, historically oftentimes has been kind of, um, you know, you should bask in my glory. It's not really selfless. How did you come to those themes? Because like I said, I've never heard that before in a presidential speech before that. Yeah, Tom, um, I wish I had a simple answer for you. I, you know, we're all evolving. Uh, and, you know, I'm a product, a child of that hierarchical authoritarian leadership. That's everything that I was raised in from actually my Marine Corps sergeant father <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, to surgery and cardiothoracic residency, you know, in the 1980s. And, and our specialty uh, is, has been a macho specialty uh, that has not been attractive to uh, women. Um, and it's not been a favorable career path for women. Um, and, and as such, we are, we are more flawed than we otherwise would be uh, because of, because there is an aspect and now I'm just gonna use the broader term diversity, but you know, in the, in the speech I was giving, I was specifically talking about gender diversity, but that diversity makes us stronger. Uh, because we have these different strengths and viewpoints and lived experiences that represent the patients that we care for and that, that can soften the edges of that hierarchical authoritarian uh, and selfish type of leadership that is mostly what I witnessed um, in, from many people that were, uh, that I learned from in most of my training. And, and it was as I watched uh, individuals that I respected a lot, people like Ed Verrier, people like Carlos Pellegrini, like Doug Matheson. Um, and as I self-reflected on the things that were strengths and weaknesses in our specialty and what what we could do to be better you know the things i i wanted to focus on is improving the gender diversity in our specialty and then i'd broaden that to all diversity but i was specifically uh emphasizing gender diversity um, and the fact that we needed to change our leadership style to, you know, what is a much more modern type of leadership, which is servant leadership, where we really, the leader is, is just present to serve the people that they lead. It's not the other way around. Uh, and that is different than, you know, was, was probably the historical um, way that surgery or cardiothoracic surgery has been for most of the previous decades. 
we're now up, of course, in the year 2020, uh, you know, six years after the speech that you gave. Do you think we're making progress or is it we still have a ways to go? Both. Yeah, we're making progress. I, I think um, I think we have much better awareness of the fact that um, minimal diversity within our specialty is a weakness. I, I think until recently that was you know not well recognized, but I think it's pretty broadly recognized now. And I think there are lots of aspects of training and of practice and of attention to um, wellness and how we, how we balance our careers with our families. There were things that we didn't used to talk about that are good for all of us. They're not just good for women going into surgery or cardiothoracic surgery, they're good for men. You know, so I look at this as you know, the, the things that we learn from our women colleagues that help us practice better um, and and balance life better are good for all of us. Uh, and, and I've benefited from that. I've benefited directly from that and you know how I feel I'm able to be with my own family that is is different than I think I saw my mentors being with their families one generation earlier. And I, I've, I've, I'm, I feel privileged, I feel gratitude for having that. So I think we are making progress and we have a long way to go because we started way behind. When I gave that talk six years ago, um, that talk was to 94% men. There were 6% women in our specialty and in 2014. That's pretty bad. The only specialty as bad as cardiothoracic is neurosurgery. It's sobering, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, it is, but you know, I think we're doing better. And yeah, you know, thank God we also have some incredible women role models, mentors uh, that, that are inspiring to medical students and to surgery residents who see cardiothoracic surgery as an exciting, fantastic specialty, which it is. And so, you know, it helps to get a critical mass to then um, have women that are part of the face of cardiothoracic surgery and part of the, the inspiration and role modeling that make it normal for a, a medical student to be interested in cardiothoracic surgery. I, I, I'm excited at this time in cardiothoracic surgery because I see us changing, changing for the better uh, every day. And, you know, it's no fun to actually be finished at, with a goal and actually say it's all accomplished. You know, the journey is a part of the joy and we're on a journey of, of improving as a specialty. That's, that's amazing, Doug. I mean, um, I, I almost regret that uh, we don't have a lot more time <laughs> because you and I could be spending all day. But um, in the few moments that we have uh, at the end of this, this particular interview, um, I wanted to talk about something that you are uniquely doing that's bigger than our field. 
Um, and I'm talking about, again, the great skill set that you have in addition to mentorship is seeing the big picture. And there are a number of tangible examples that potentially were seen as big risks at the time you got involved into it. But now we're seeing the benefits of you leading in these efforts. And I want to talk about, you know, really three different aspects. One is um, you got involved uh, as one of the leading investigators of the National Emphysema Treatment Trial, which at the time that clinical trial was being done, had never been done. You know, it was like a predominantly funded by Medicare that led to a complete change in the way we do a surgical intervention or a treatment for a disease at that period of time. And then you extended on towards um, getting involved in, you know, with the NCCN, but then specifically your passion project on lung cancer screening, which then again led towards um, you know, being involved in the development of policies and guidelines and testifying in Capitol Hill to, uh, you know, to help policymakers. When you're about to embark on a project like this, do you envision these are the results or is it just, it just feels that this is the right thing to do and then you just kind of go and see where it lands? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that I'm that smart to have uh, been able to foresee where things would end up. I, I, I would say, and it's kind of embarrassing to say this, um, I kind of stumble and, um, you know, and get lucky. Uh, so part of my problem, you know, part of a problem, my wife would say is I'm not good at saying no. So, you know, something would come up and I'd go, yeah, I'll do it. And I take it on. You know, and some things wouldn't go anywhere, but other things did. And you've mentioned a couple of them and, and, you know, I'm excited to look backwards and, you know, say that I had a chance to be involved in these things. So the National Emphysema Treatment Trial and the development of lung volume reduction surgery, of course, started by Joel Cooper, but then that um, um, we investigated in the uh, NET trial now that led to a national coverage decision from Medicare for uh, for lung volume reduction surgery that um, you know is offered a surgical therapy for emphysema that that helps a lot of people that makes a big difference and has led to a whole another area of endobronchial therapies for emphysema uh, that myself and you and others have been involved in um, and. I mean, I couldn't have foreseen when I did my first lung volume reduction surgery, having talked with Joel Cooper and learned something about how to do it, that this was going to lead to a whole nother field and a whole nother treatment for emphysema. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I was just doing something because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And it, and it, it led to you know, the development of a new surgical procedure. Lung cancer screening, I think I was older. That one, that one, I'd say I knew that was the right thing. And it was just figuring out how do we get the evidence to move policy to make lung cancer screening a part of preventive care and early detection services for patients at risk of lung cancer. So that one, maybe I had a little more foresight uh, of saying this, this is, 
something that's important to be involved in um, uh, as a surgeon and to help lead the guidelines development and then the advocacy with policymakers. And probably the most important part of that was the quiet but ongoing meetings with Medicare administrators, not the more public meeting with a Senate briefing, but the meeting with Medicare, meetings with Medicare administrators um, of a group of us, a consortium of people that were just working behind the scenes to educate them about how Medicare could safely implement a lung cancer screening policy uh, nationally as another national coverage decision. So uh, that one, when I look backwards, I, I'm really proud of that because I think that, um, you know, there, there's a host of people involved in that and I'm just happy to be one of them that uh, have been able to move that needle and offer now lung cancer screening uh, to individuals that are at risk for lung cancer. There's, uh, in my mind, no bigger cancer intervention uh, in terms of potential for lives saved in our generation. That's incredible. Um, with our final thoughts, uh, Doug, uh, I mean, this has been amazing, uh, thinking about how this interview started in Otsego, Michigan, to Harvard, to Seattle, to you know, national policy. Um, do you have do you have any words of wisdom to our younger listeners who are, um, you know, either deciding to go into cardiothoracic surgery or at the beginning of their career in terms of, um, you know, reflecting back or some pearls of wisdom from your from your storied career today? Well, I guess I don't know what, how how much wisdom is in these pearls, but I will. <laughs> You know, uh, and one is cardiothoracic surgery is a really great specialty. I mean, I look backwards on my career and, and I am excited to go to work every day now. And I was when I started. And when I, when I think about it and try to explain why to a student, it's pretty easy. You know, first, it's technically cool. What we get to do technically, you know, and I'm just going to ignore all the patient care stuff. It's just technically cool what we get to do uh, that, that changes anatomy and makes something better. But besides that, it's intellectually challenging. You know, in spite of surgery not being a quote unquote cognitive specialty, I certainly am thinking a lot uh, and trying to figure out how to solve a problem. And that moves to the point that it's creative. It gives us an opportunity to think through unique problems and work with uh, colleagues of solving medical challenges, surgical challenges. And then I'm gonna to come to the, the pinnacle, which is we have this incredible privilege of making a difference in people's lives. I think about that every day and think, you know, and I look at a time like this when we're in the pandemic and some people don't have jobs uh, and, or people are working from home and, you know, all of us are fighting different challenges through the COVID pandemic. 
And, and it makes me even more appreciative of, of the work that I do. And I think I get to do things for people that help them lead better lives. And, you know, there's no better privilege than that. Uh, so I'd first say that for somebody that's thinking about a career in cardiothoracic surgery. And then the, the journey that is kind of going from deciding you're going to do it to getting wherever you're going is, you know, I think many of my, my peers are really good at being deliberate and they've got a path and they've figured out, I'm going to go to A and then I'm going to go to B and I'm going to go to C and they've got it all calculated. You know, I'll, I'll say mine was not nearly as organized as that. Um, I, I just felt like I wanted to do my best wherever I was and let the path lead where it was and just be happy with uh, what I had. Uh, and, I, and I always have. I've been happy with the institution where I work, the colleagues that I have the privilege to work with, uh, and the opportunities that, uh, that I've been able to have. And, you know, I think that if you are too well-defined up front, then it's easy to get disappointed. If, uh, for me, I've just been gratified for any opportunity or anything I've had the chance to do. That's amazing, Doug. Well, for our listeners, uh, I'm hoping uh, this interview gave you some insights as to why uh, Dr. Doug Wood is a cherished mentor in my life. Uh, Doug, on behalf of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, um, thank you for taking this opportunity to join us on this podcast today. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for including me and thanks for not uh, bringing up any exposés that would have embarrassed me. In front of my family. That'll, that'll be maybe part of a future podcast, but we're good for right now. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Doug. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.